All right. How's everybody? Thank you, sir. You guys could turn in your Bibles to John chapter 5. That's where we're at tonight in our, uh, in our study of the signs in the Gospel of John. We're walking through a series entitled Signs. We're doing that because of what John wrote in John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. John writes these words. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which were not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so that's why we're here, right? We're here to soar, to, to walk through these signs in hopes of you believing that Jesus is exactly who he said he is, right? And so we've talked about the miracle at Cana and the turning the water into wine. Um, we've talked about John 4 and the healing of the, of the royal official's son. And so tonight we're talking about the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda. And so you can turn to John chapter 5 and we'll start there in verse 1 as we walk through this passage. This is a, this is a pivotal point in the ministry of Jesus. Okay? Things begin to change once the miracle in John 5 that's recorded happens because the Jews already didn't like Jesus. And when I talk about the Jews, I'm talking about the Pharisees, right? I'm talking about the leaders. As, as, and so were John and Matthew and Mark and Luke as they wrote. These Jewish leaders didn't like Jesus. They developed that feeling early in his ministry when he walked into the temple and, and tossed it about and accused them of basically defiling their father's house. But once the miracle, the sign in John 5 takes place... They go from being a group of people who simply hate Jesus to a group of people who begin to persecute Jesus. And that persecution ultimately ends in Jesus's execution on the cross by the Roman officials. And so things change dramatically for the ministry of Jesus based upon this sign. And so I think there are a couple of lessons that you can take or we can take from this passage. So I want to say a, a big hello to everybody who's watching online. Uh, we appreciate you being a part of our service. Uh, big hello to all of you in here as well. As always, you can get the sermon notes uh, through the YouVersion app. If you don't have your, uh, have your Bible to follow along through the YouVersion Bible app, you can simply go on to the YouVersion Bible app, log in, click on the more um, uh, the more page and from it, you can find live events, simply find Tomoka. And anytime we're doing a live event, our sermon notes are there. They're editable. You can bring them up and you can take notes yourself, but that's through the YouVersion Bible app. So I'm going to ask you guys to stand and we're going to read John chapter five, the first uh, 15 verses and just get a feel for this, to get a feel for this story and for this sign. John chapter five and verse one, John writes this sometime later. Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Listen, we don't know which festival. We don't know. It doesn't say, and we don't know. There's people who guess which festival it was, whether it was Passover um, uh, or whether it was Pentecost or whether it was Purim. We don't know. He just went to Jerusalem for one of the festivals. Uh, he's in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, which means house of mercy, house of outpouring, um, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. 
Here a great number of disabled or infirm people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. And Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at work to do this to this very day. And I too am working. You guys can be seated. So there's the story. There's the sign, right? And listen, we could spend a lot more time on this sign and this text than we're going to give it tonight, okay? Again, this idea of these signs point to something, right? The Greek word for sign that's constantly used in the Gospel of John is the Greek word that basically means marker, right? That, that these signs are designed to point to something else, right? They're designed. The sign isn't the end of the whole thing, Right? Any sign, listen, if you go somewhere, right, if I like to travel, I like to drive, right, signs are hugely important, right? But if you get to the sign, right, if you just get to the sign that tells you you made it and you say, I'm here, that's all I needed to do is just get to the sign, right, you've missed the point of what the sign is. The sign is designed to point you to something greater, something else. The miracle in and of itself is simply a sign pointing to something else. And so we've talked about what these signs point to. I'm only going to give you two tonight. I've got three, but I don't think there's a chance in the world that I'm going to get to three. So I only put two in the notes, right? So let's talk about a couple things. First of all, you may not care, no, watch it online either. But if you look in your Bibles, most of your Bibles will go from verse 3 to verse 5. Verse 4 is not there, okay? Some of your text may act, if you have a King James version, the old King James, you'll see verse 4 in there. But if you have an ESV or an NIV, right, it goes from verse 3 to verse 5. Why? Here's why. Because, listen, there are over 5,000, 5,000 historical documents 
that the New Testament has been developed from in the Old Testament. Okay, over five thousand. Which, if you study um, the 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 historical texts and how valid they are, having over five thousand pieces to validate its authenticity authenticity is an absolute joke. No, none of them have even a fraction of that. And yet the Bible has well over 5,000. Our earliest manuscripts that we look at did not include verse 4. As best as people can tell is that scribes, these were people that basically took the original and then they made copies to distribute. The best that they can tell is around the 2nd century, they began to add verse 4 the scribes did to sort of explain what was taking place better, right? And so most of your, most of your translations of your scripture won't have verse four. If you have a, if you have a a Bible with study notes, it might read it to you. Here's what verse four says. It says, they waited for the moving of the waters at the end of verse three. From time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. The first one into the pool after each disturbance would be cured at whatever disease they held. Listen, our earliest manuscripts do not contain that. Therefore, I don't, I don't contain it in it in my reading of it either. I simply think it was a note by the scribe to communicate to people who were reading it that this was a common belief to people. The common belief was that there was something that happened in the pool of Bethesda, right? That would cause these these bubbles, right? To surge up into this pool, releasing this sediment, right? That people believed had medicinal powers. That if they could simply get into that water first, they could receive healing. That was the common legend around the Bull of Bethesda. This site, the Pool of Bethesda, wasn't unearthed by archaeologists until about the 19th century. And there was a lot of, a lot of people who claimed this story alone invalidated the authenticity of John's gospel because they had no proof of it. They had no proof of it ever existing. And so because of that, they questioned the authenticity of the story, which allowed them to question the authenticity of the book, which allowed them to question the authenticity of Jesus, which allowed them to question the authenticity of God. God's sort of funny, right? There are people who dig in the dirt and they're really good at revealing the past. And this place was uncovered. The five colonnades, just like they described, the pool, just like they described, archaeologists found, right, found this site, which gave complete validation to the story that John tells in John chapter 5. The man was paralyzed, or the man was infirmed. We don't know exactly what his sickness was, and we don't know how old he is, right? It says he was, he was in this condition for 38 years. He could have been in this condition since birth. Or he could have lived a while and developed this condition. All we know is his length of infirmity. Listen to this. He was sick and infirmed for 38 years. And it's clear that whatever his infirmity was, it kept him on the ground because Jesus had to say to him, get up and 
walk, right? Now listen, I don't know about you, but these are the kind of things that I think we have to connect to when we're reading scripture. I mean, if you, if you get sick and you're sick for two, three, four days, I mean, be honest. How do you feel about being sick for three or four days? Cranky, grouchy, angry, mad, right? And that's, that is allowing you just to be sick and you can still get up and walk around your house or you can, some of you even take your sicknesses to work because you're that kind of person, right? Got to come to work no matter what, you know, the reality is we don't like being sick for very long at all, right? This guy was infirmed and brought to this place for the hope of healing for 38 years. 38 years. Listen, for some of you, you haven't even been alive that long in this room. Right? For some of you watching online, that's, you can't imagine doing anything for 38 years. Right? This guy was brought to this place for 38 years. And here's the thing. Not one person in 38 years ever bothered to care for him. And so what's this? This thing is first and foremost to me, a sign of compassion. It was a sign of compassion, right? There, listen, the colonnades were five pillars. So each colonnade would be five pillars long and would have a roof over it. And these people would lay on, on those, on that concrete underneath these overhangs by this pool and Hundreds of people would lie here infirmed or would sit here infirmed in hopes that that water would stir or bubble and they could be the first one into it in the hopes that they would be healed. This man came to this pool for 38 years. That means some people saw him a lot. Some people knew he would never make it into the pool unless somebody helped him. And where was the compassion? It didn't exist. This sign is a sign of compassion. Listen to what the Bible says. Go to, go to Exodus 34. We'll skip the reading there. These, these are verses about God and the fact that he is compassionate. Exodus 34, 6. And he passed in front of Moses, that is God, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord... The compassionate and gracious God who is slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. How about in Psalm 103 verse 8? It says this, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounds in love. Psalm 116 verse 5 says this, the Lord is gracious and righteous. Our God is full of compassion. Lamentations chapter 3 and verse 22, one of my favorite sections of scripture says, Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassion never fails. You can find hundreds of verses just in the Old Testament about the fact that our God is compassionate. It transfers over. And, and, and it transfers over to Jesus. And here's why this is important. Because you and I might not get this, right? I don't know how many of you have gone to church for a long time or how many were raised in church or how many were raised in a weird church, okay? But there's some, you know, there's some dumb, there's some dumb things taught in churches. Would you guys agree with that? 
All right, there's some dumb things taught, right? So I didn't grow up in church. I've said a hundred times, but I went to church when I was junior in high school, started going to church. It was a church of Christ. It was a country church of Christ in the middle of Southern Illinois, right? And the, and the theology was this, that basically said, listen, if you're sinning, right? If you're doing something wrong, then God's going to be punishing you. To the point that this was the kind of stupid stuff that got taught to us. If you get up in the morning and you got a flat tire, you better be asking yourself, what did you do wrong? Anybody ever go to that church? Yeah, right? And, and that was the kind of stuff that would happen. We would, we would be taught to connect tragedy or bad circumstances to the fact that maybe God's punishing you. Right? That was always the question that we got asked. Right? And that was perpetrated in Bible college. Right? Things didn't go well. Got a bad grade on your test. Right? You, you lost your job. Right? The church let you go. You can connect. And here was the thing. You were always asked this by people who were wiser. Are, are you hiding anything? Right? Are you doing anything wrong? Because somehow we got it in our heads that that's how God operated. Right? That thinking was exactly what the Jews thought a million times worse. They believed that all infirmity, all sickness, all disease was connected to man's sin. And think about it. If a man is connected to his disease or his sickness by their sin, and God allows them to stay sick for 38 years, they have to be really, really sinful. And so guess what? This guy wasn't just infirmed. This guy was an outcast. And he was an outcast within a group of people who were outcast. I've been fortunate to go to places, some places around the world to serve on mission trips. And one of the places, the first place I got to go was a place called Guatemala City. Went there to serve, actually went there to observe, just to sort of see what was happening to decide whether we were going to support this mission or not. And on the Friday after, so I got there on a, on a Thursday. On the Friday, we went to a place in Guatemala City called The Dump. Affectionately, the, the dump, the largest single dump in Central America is in Guatemala City. And this place is the size of nine football fields. It's got three different levels and trucks from all over Guatemala come flying in there to dump their trash. And here was the crazy part. I've seen dumps. I grew up in the, I grew up in the country, right? I mean, we had dumps, right? Never seen one that big. That was incredible. But here was the part that rocked my world. People lived in the dump. They lived there. So in the front part of the dump, they had basically dug trenches in these dirt paths. And then they would, they would stand up some two by fours and they would nail a piece of sheet metal to it. And then they would drag things out of the dump as they could find them. And that became their home. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people live inside the walls of the city dump. I couldn't believe it. I, I, I could not believe that that was the case. Fast forward. Went back a year and a half later to do a medical 
a medical mission trip there. And we spent two days in the dump. And here's what I found out in the dump. There are people who live in the dump. And then there are people who are outcast living in the dump. That even within the dump, they had a slum of people. Because when those people came on the second day of the clinic, they looked like they lived in the dump. And I was like, well, where are these people coming from? And they're like, the dump. Where at? They are segregated away from other people who live in the dump. That was this man. He wasn't just an outcast who was labeled by the Jews and society to say he's sick and infirm because he's a sinner. No, no, no. He's been allowed by God to stay sick for 38 years. Therefore, his wickedness and sin makes him an outcast of outcast. It's, listen, it's not a coincidence that Jesus picked this man. This guy had been completely marginalized by people every single day for 38 years. Some of you will leave here tonight. Some of you will click off your device tonight and get into a fight with your spouse or significant other because you will feel for one second marginalized. Or you will go to bed hurt and angry, but you'll keep your mouth shut because that's what dutiful spouses do. We don't cause a fight, but we'll take our anger and our hurt to bed with us because why? We'll feel marginalized. And here's why. We hate feeling marginalized, don't we? Everybody in here hates to be overlooked, right? Non-noticed, right? How many, how many relationships end Because one person finally has enough of being ignored and not being noticed. Tons of them. This guy was ignored for 38 years. 38 years in his despair and hopelessness. These people got carried to this place. And those who could carry them looked upon this guy with zero compassion. Zero. Mark chapter 9 One and two, this was the healing of the man born blind. And this is the Jewish thinking about exactly what we were talking about. Uh, John chapter nine, I'm sorry, John nine, one and two. Just ignore what I say, all right? He says, this was the blind man. As he went along, he saw a man, this was Jesus, a man blind from birth. Here's the question these Jewish boys, teenage boys asked him, meaning they were taught this. Rabbi or teacher who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind. You see, that was the thought process. Infirmity, disease, those things were connected to sinful behavior. And yet, what did Jesus do? He had compassion on him. He picked him. Right? And I get tired of this stuff. Like, Jesus asked the guy. Right? Now, think about it. Think about it. (laughs) Just think about it for a second. Think about the longest stretch of time you've been sick. I mean sick. Like, not the kind of sick that you drag to work and make everybody else sick, okay? I'm talking about the kind of sick that makes you stay away from other people. The kind of sick that puts you in bed. Or even or even worse, the kind of sick that keeps you in a hospital bed. And you think about those that season of how sick you were. And then ask yourself, how long did it take you to get so discouraged that you never, ever thought you were going to get better? 
I guarantee you it was a lot sooner than 38 years. And when people would try to help you in your despair and discouragement, do you think, no, I'm never going to get any better. I'm pretty sure I'm a dead man walking. I'm going to die right here, right? I mean, how long does it take for you to feel so sorry for yourself that you just give up hope? And so there are commentators that see this guy, right? This guy being asked by Jesus, do you want to get well? And his response is, nobody will take me into the water. And they say that this guy made an excuse. What are you talking about? If you've been drugged to this place as a lame individual for 38 years and watched people marginalize and discard you for 38 years, you're going to tell me that your response would, would not be the same? Wouldn't no excuse making there. He was simply stating the fact, nobody, nobody will take me into the water. Nobody will take me there. He wasn't making an excuse. He was telling his story. 38 years of coming to this place and not once did he get to the water. Why? Because nobody took him. That ain't an excuse. Those are called facts. Right? Listen, we lose sight of facts within a week of being sick. Right? There's nothing you can do to make me feel better. Right? Nothing's going to help me. Just pray. Just pray. Right? Like say, that's, that's, that's how we become within a week of being sick. This guy gets asked, listen, when you've been sick for 38 years, do you not think that you've lost hope of ever being healed again? I mean, listen, some of you have been sick for a week or 10 days and you're like, I'm never getting better. This guy was sick for 38 years. It's not unusual that Jesus asked him, do you want to get well? Because dude had lost hope. Dude had lost despair. Right? There are people in our world today who have suffered quarantine and loss because of COVID for almost a year. And the discouragement and the despair and the hopelessness is on an absolute rocket ship incline based upon everything that we're reading and hearing. And it's been less than a year. And all people have been asked to do is stay at home, wear a mask, and we're losing our mind. This guy... This guy dealt with his issue for 38 years. And not one time did anybody offer to help him. It's not surprising that Jesus asked him if he wanted to get well. It was the most normal question in the world to ask a guy who clearly had no hope. So his response is pretty simple. I can't, I can't get to the water. What was he saying? Nobody will help me. Nobody. Why did Jesus help him? Listen to these verses. and This will tell us why. Luke chapter 7 verse 13. That, that says, says to her. Nah, I hate this version. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her. In the, in the Greek, that's, he had compassion. Right? When the Lord saw her, he had compassion and went out to her. He had compassion and he said to her, don't cry. Right? How about this one? In Matthew 15, 33, Jesus called his disciples to him and he said, I have compassion for these people. They've already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. I don't want to send them away hungry or they may collapse on the way. How about this one? Matthew 14, 14 makes it a lot more clear. When Jesus landed in his boat and saw a large crowd, he had and saw, everybody say saw. When Jesus landed and saw, he had compassion on them 
and healed their sick. Why did Jesus pick this man? Because he saw him. He saw him. Listen, there is no possible way for you and I to be compassionate toward people in their situations if we're not close enough to see what they're going through. It does not matter if we stand up here and tell you the worst stories in the world until you walk the streets of the dump in Guatemala City. You can't have compassion. You can feel guilty. You can feel ashamed. You can feel moved to want to give them money. But compassion comes from being connected. Right? You want to know why Jesus picked the man? Because he stood in front of him. And he saw him. And you know what he probably saw? A man who had no hope. A man who had laid in his own infirmity for 38 years. And nobody helped him. Listen, if we go 24 hours and our face is downcast and full of despair, we're often angry because nobody notices. Right? How many times have you yelled at somebody and said to them, you don't even care? What do you mean I don't care? Of course I care. Right? And you pick out the moment that you knew you were communicating to other people in your, in your, in your look and in your demeanor that something was wrong. And nobody even asked you, are you okay? And people get mad all the time about that kind of stuff. Why? Because we don't have any compassion. And listen, let me explain the difference between compassion and guilt. Right? You all saw the commercials at Christmas time and Thanksgiving when they play them at Thanksgiving and Christmas about the songs or, or the, the commercials about the dying animals, right? You've all seen those, right? I mean, listen, that's one of the most manipulative things on TV, right? You're sitting in your house with a turkey leg in one hand, right? And a half-eaten pumpkin pie in the other and this screen comes up with this with this gut-wrenching song and these horrific pictures and basically says, do you even care that this dog's going to die? Right? And, and here's the thing. That does not create compassion. It creates guilt. And you want to know the difference? The difference is this, that when you give to guilt, you can get rid of it. When you give out of compassion, it simply grows. It simply grows. You can appease guilt. All you got to do is pay its debt. If you can appease guilt by paying its debt, it'll go away. Compassion doesn't have a debt. Except to the next person and the next person and the next person. Listen, there are people in, there are people in our community. Right? So we go all over the world here at Tomoka and we talk about, we talk about a guy you, unless you go on our trip to Israel, you'll never meet. Hani Sadiq. Right? A missionary right there in the West Bank that we've asked you to give a thousand dollars to. And hopefully, and, and, and based upon your history, that'll happen tonight without a problem. And we'll be able to send that money and bless he and his family. Right? But there is nothing like standing in front of somebody and seeing their story to move you with compassion. And there are people in our community. Listen, you don't have to get on a bus and spend $5,000 or a plane and a bus in Israel to find compassion. Just walk down your street. Right? Listen to the stories that are being screamed out on Facebook and social media. Right? Look at the pictures. And here's what I know. If we're not connected to people, we're never going to be a compassionate people. This was a sign of compassion. 
A sign that Jesus is compassionate. A sign that confirms that God's compassion was transferred to Jesus. And now that's been asked of us to transfer as well. Listen to what Colossians, Colossians chapter, I think you've got it. It's the last one in that first point there. Colossians chapter 3 verses 12 through 14 say. This is what Paul writes. He says, therefore as God's chosen people. Listen, if you're a believer in here, if you're a believer online, can I hear you say amen? Listen, that means you chose it. Chosen by God, holy, separated kind of people, and dearly loved. That's how God feels about you. Here's what he tells us. Clothe yourselves with compassion. That kind of, that kind of deep emotional feeling that moves you to action. You've got to put it on. Listen, compassion is an intrinsic Compassion is not an intrinsic value that people feel. We're built to be judgmental of people, right? So my, my son Jeremiah and his, and his wife Amanda who've lived here in Ormond, served here for four and a half years and have been here for roughly seven, eight years, are leaving this week, taking my beautiful granddaughters with them and they're leaving and going a thousand miles away, right? And they're going back home. They're going back up to Illinois and they're going to start, they're going to start in ministry at a church back in Illinois. They're leaving this weekend. Meanwhile, the church that they're serving is working in the home that they've rented through a virtual tour. And so they're repainting this house and the, the church is. They're repainting the house. They're fixing some drywall issues. They're cleaning the carpets. They've cleaned all the appliances. They're going to stock it with food. They've emptied the basement. This church is doing all kinds of things. Talked to my buddy today, who's the pastor of that church. And here's what he said to me. He said, can you believe this? He said, there are people. And this is a guy who, the guy who owns the house is 80 plus years old. He has no family and no help. Right? This home is part of his income to get people to rent it. And he hasn't been able to rent it. And the church found it and is renting it. He's incapable of doing all this. It would have cost him a ton of money. So Jason went to him and said, hey, how about if we bring our church in and we'll do all this for you? Right? Three people last night in their work group came up to Jesus or came up to Jason and said this. What if we do all of this work for this guy? And he decides a year from now, you know what? I'm just going to sell this house. Right? What's the point in us doing this if, if he can just take advantage of us and sell it for a profit and it didn't cost him any money? That is what's intrinsic in human beings. Right? That's who we are. Right? We're the kind of people that always hedge our bets when it comes to doing things for other people because we might get shortchanged. Compassion never measures our side of the column. Ever. Jesus didn't get any benefit out of healing this man. Compassion never worries about what we get. But you know what? You're going to have to put it on. You're going to have to put it on. Here's what 1 John 3 says, the verse right before that, David. 1 John 3, 17, this one's even more, more connected to the reality of compassion. It says this, if anyone has material possessions, 
sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity. That Greek word is compassion. Has no compassion on them. Listen to this. How can the love of God be in that person? You see, if the love of God is present in you, through the presence of God's Spirit, compassion will always move you to meet the needs of those less fortunate. But you know how to stay away from acting on compassion? Never get close enough to anybody's mess. Stay connected to your church and disconnected from other people's stories. Otherwise, you might end up like the Good Samaritan. And you may have to get off your donkey. I was going to say it differently, right? (laughs) Thank you. You can go home now, right? If this was a King James version of the sermon, I'd use the different word, right? But you might have to get off your donkey. You might, not have to, you might have to get down in a ditch. You might have to actually give time and energy and effort to bandage the wounds of those in the ditch. And it might cost you some money. But until you see, you can't have compassion. Because compa- compassion is never intrinsic within us as individuals. It's moved by what we see. And if we're full of the love of God, it always acts toward other people. You see, that's the other thing about compassion. You can't have it without being connected. And here's the thing. Once you have it, it's always connected to somebody else. It's not connected to you. To me, this was a sign of compassion. And I think it's a sign that should move us to compassion. Let's move on. This is why I only put two points in here, right? It, it isn't just a sign of compassion. And, I, and my buddy told me, don't get lost in compassion. You know, but, but in the world that we live in today, there are so many hurting people. I mean, the one thing about working here at Tomoka that we constantly see is there are people that are hurting all over the place. Just about every call, every email, every text reveals somebody else whose story says they're hurting. Right? Man, if we want to make a difference in our world today and give people hope that Jesus is real, man, the people who have the love of God in them need to be moved with compassion, which means you need to get out of your car, out of your house, right? Out of your garage, out of your fenced in yard, and you need to be close to people so you can see their story, so you can be moved by compassion. And here's why, because this is also a sign of condemnation, condemnation. Listen, here's the reality of the story. The biggest reason that this sign is so, so evident in scripture is this, that he did it on the Sabbath, right? You can go back to Exodus. I put these in your notes, but you can go back to Exodus, right? Chapter 20, and you can read the 10 commandments, right? And one of the commandments is you shall work for six days and on the seventh day rest, right? You shall honor God and keep the Sabbath holy, right? That's commandment. Right? One of 613 laws of Moses. So here's what the Pharisees did. The Jewish leaders, the spiritual leaders, they created what's called the Mishnah. Right? And so here's what the Mishnah does. These are rules put in place by men to create what's called a fence. Right? And the design of the Mishnah, which were thousands upon thousands of laws, We're designed to keep people like you and me so far away from God's law that there was no chance in the world we could ever violate it, right? 
That's what the law, the traditions of these Jewish leaders did. God said, keep the Sabbath holy. How can we guarantee that these people will keep it holy? Well, let's create a fence around it, right? Create a fence around that law and push people even further back by setting up man-made rules that will guarantee they'll never get close to it. So you know what they did? They created 39 categories of work that was prohibited on the Sabbath. And under, check this out. This, this is what's, this is what's natural to us. They took the 39 categories of work. These were men. Remember the Sabbath. Keep it holy. Work for six days. Rest on the seventh. Keep the Sabbath holy. One commandment, two verses. They took that one commandment and two verses and created six or created 39 categories of work. And under the 39 categories of work, they created 1,521 laws. 1,000, everybody say this with me, 1,521 laws for one commandment of 613. And here was why. Here's why they said it. We want to be so honorable and reverent to God that we need a fence around the commandment so that people like you won't touch it. And then what happened was the man-made laws that created the fence became God's laws. So all of a sudden, violating that commandment became violating God's commandment. And just like that, men... Men, not God, men set themselves up to be God and therefore controlled the whole group. And you know what Jesus did? He walks into Bethesda, sees all these sick and lame people who were disabled, finds the guy who's been there for 38 years, the worst of the worst, the outcast of the outcast, the sinner of all sinners. And Jesus comes up to him and says to him on the Sabbath, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And you know what? The Jewish leaders were ticked because the number one category of the 39 categories of work that was prohibited by the Sabbath, do you know what the number one category was? Carrying. Carrying. Listen to this. This is what is said about carrying. I just want to read some of this to you. It's crazy, right? It says that carrying is, is the very first type of work that's prohibited, right? He says carrying is really a prototype. This is a Jewish writer about these categories of work. He says carrying is a prototype of all other types of Sabbath work. As mentioned earlier, the definition of such work is any act where a man demonstrates his mastery over nature. But the first act by which man demonstrates such mastery is by taking things from nature and carrying them where he needs them. This was the deed of the man who gathered wood. That was a story in the Torah. Therefore, if we are to relinquish our mastery over nature, the first requirement is that we do not carry anything away. He goes on to say this. The category absolutely forbids all carrying in, all carrying in the street. Even such trivial things as keys, this is modern day, keys, handkerchiefs must be left at home. 
Certainly pocketbooks, purses, wallets, keychains may not be carried. The only thing they may carry outdoors are things that are actually worn. Carrying in private home is permitted on the Sabbath. It's only in public domain that it's forbidden. Jesus went in and said, God is a God of compassion. I pick you. The most marginalized, overlooked, outcast, one of the bunch. He passes the command for us to be compassionate. Can't be compassionate when you're disconnected. Can't have compassion if it never acts. Right? But it's also a sign of condemnation. And it was a sign of condemnation of the kind of thing that says, our man-made laws are as good as God's laws. And if you want to honor God, you honor us. And here's how you do it. You don't carry your mat on a Sabbath. And you know what Jesus said to the guy? Let's break some rules. Right? Let's break some rules. So that's my buddy. I said, translate that for me in 2021. He said, well, you know what? You and Joe can start it tonight. He said, you can walk into service tonight and you can tell people this. Starting this weekend, man, if you love God and you want to come and worship God and honor him, you're going to come to church, men in a suit and a tie, and women, you're going to come in dresses. And everybody who loves God and worships with us is going to dress up in a suit or dress up in a dress. And we can, and here's why. We're going to tell you because God deserves your best. You honor God with everything. So here's what we're going to do to make sure that people like you do it. We're going to give you a human law. And we're going to tell you to dress up. And you know what happens? Eventually, eventually those of you who come and aren't dressed up, we're going to make you feel like you've done something wrong. We're going to look at you like, don't you love God? Why would you come to church without your suit on? Or you see how this works, church? This is exactly what Jesus is condemning. He's condemning the show. The kind of show that we often put on for other people. Right? The kind of show that says to people, listen, if we say these things, or we do these things, or we go to church, right? These outward external things, they allow us to be puffed up. They allow us to say to other people, You're, you might not be as spiritual as I am. And here's what Jesus said to the Pharisees about this issue on another occasion. When they were mad that the disciples didn't wash their hands before they ate. Here's what Jesus said. It's not anything on the outside that defiles a human being. What defiles a person is what's in their heart. You see, we have people outside of these walls. And outside of the walls, wherever you're at, whether it's a car, a house, Starbucks, wherever. There are people outside of your wall. And you know what these people need? They need a compassionate God. Can I get an amen? They need a compassionate God. And you know how they're going to find a compassionate God? They're going to find a compassionate person who loves God. Can I get an amen? And that compassion is going to move that person. And it's going to move that person to consider. Consider the possibility of God being real. And the message of Jesus being believable. 
what are they going to find if they come to you? Are you going to be the kind of person that sets up this man-made fence of rules that says you've got to do these things to prove that you're one of us, that you're accepting of Jesus? Listen, now, I've had stories, all kinds of stories in the 11 years I've been here of people who showed up to Tomoka and the minute they pulled in the parking lot, they turned around and left. And these are people who've gone to church their whole life and you only know, like, turned around and left because they watched people walk into service in shorts and flip-flops. And they said, I can't worship at a church like that. And I thought, why? What about a short and a flip-flop would keep you from worshiping the Almighty God? Right? Unless, unless you believed that that fence was as important as honoring God. Listen, parents do that to their kids. Grandparents do that to their grandchildren. Church people do it to other church people. Pastors do it to church members. Elders do it to church leaders. We do it all the time. And the reality is those people out there that need Jesus and need hope aren't ever going to find it if we don't see this as a sign of that kind of condemnation. Listen, your exterior and my exterior are what people look at. God looks at your heart. Your heart. So listen, there are people who come and worship who honestly look like they didn't even take the time to get ready, right? Now listen, I'm going to tell you this. I was at Walmart the other day. I haven't been to Walmart in God knows how long. And I was reminded why. That's like a walking graveyard in there, right? I mean, seriously. If you're a per- listen, if you're listening online and you're in here and if you're going to Walmart in your pajamas, stop it! Listen, that's just embarrassing, okay? I'm not judging you. But that's just, listen, that's just wrong, okay? And listen, if you come to Tomoka and you come to worship in pajamas, we're not going to judge you, but we're probably going to ask you, is there something wrong, okay? (laughs) Might be an indication, right? I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about when we, listen, it was the kind of stupid stuff that teenagers my age in 1985 were told. If you're a Christian, you don't play cards. You never go to a dance. You never. What do you mean I can't go to my junior prom and be a Christian? Exactly. Because dancing leads to sex. And God's against sex. Right? That was the man-made fence. That was the 1985 Latona Church of Christ Mishnah. Don't go to a dance because dancing leads to sex and sex is a sin. So we had to stay two layers away from the law. You can't play cards because if you go to a place that plays cards, then there's bound to be alcohol and the Bible says don't get drunk. So we created a fence. Just don't play cards. You see what I'm saying? Jesus condemns that. He condemns that in the Jews and he condemns that in you. He condemns that in me. Because we honor God with our heart. Not with our mouth. And not with our show. Listen to this passage. I want to read, I want to read a couple and then I'm, I'm, I'm just going to read these and we're going to end. Okay. I want to read Mark 2, Mark 2, 23 through 28. This was Jesus again talking about the Sabbath and putting himself in this position. On the Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields and his disciples walked along. What did they do? They began to pick some heads of grain, meaning they were violating the law of carrying in public because they were exercising, exercising authority over nature and carrying the grain from its stock to their mouth. 
Here's what it said. The Pharisee said to him, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Was it unlawful from God's perspective? Come on, say it. No, but the Mishnah said that's a, that's a violation. And they had confused their laws with God's laws and they wanted to know what Jesus, what, what, what's going on? Jesus said this, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God. He entered into the, into the temple and God, and he ate the consecrated bread. You can read of that story in Kings, which is lawful only for, or excuse me, in Samuel, which is lawful only for the priest to eat. And he wasn't a priest. And here's the thing. He got it by lying. And he also gave some to his companions. Listen to this. Then Jesus said to them, the Sabbath, right? The Shabbat, the ceasing was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. God gave us the blessing of the Sabbath. On six days you shall work and on the seventh you shall cease. Why? Because it was a gift to humans to take a break. Because thanks to Adam and Eve, we had been cursed to toil the land and work it because it wasn't going to cooperate. And we were going to have to work our tails off six days a week just to eat bread and have food. And so what God did was he gave us that rest. He didn't make the Sabbath to where we had a burden. He gave it to us to receive a blessing. And here's what Jesus says. He said to the crowds and to his disciples, was that the end of it? All right, Matthew 23. Here's what Jesus finally says to the Jews as he has his final interaction with them in Matthew 23. Jesus said to the, to the Jews or to the teacher of the law, teacher of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. They sit in places of authority. Like those big stinking chairs the elders in the church of Christ used to sit at in the front of the church waiting for everybody to serve them communion, right? Drove me crazy. So every time church was over, you know what I did as a 17-year-old junior in high school? I went and sat in that chair, Right? And I made everybody who talked to me come to me in that chair, right? Because it drove me crazy. He said this, so you must be careful to do everything they tell you. They're, they do it to exercise authority. Do you want men make up these rules so that you won't violate God's laws so they can exercise authority over you? That's sacrilegious and it's false religion. And here's what he said. But... They tell you what to do, but they do not do, but it says, but do not do what they do for they do not practice what they preach. My dad didn't, my dad didn't come to faith in Christ before he died, but he watched a lot of preachers and he listened to them and he listened to them preach hellfire and damnation. And then he watched them fall one by one. They were caught in their sexual transgressions and sins. And all these men that he listened to proclaimed God's word. He watched them fall after fall after fall because they did not practice what they said. Jesus said, don't follow those kind of people. He said this, why? Because they just tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and they put them on other people's shoulders. Right? Sound familiar? They themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. He goes on to say, everything they do is done for people to see the show. Right? They make these, these phylacteries wide and their tassels and their garments long, these outward showy things. They love the place of honor at banquets, right? They love the chairs up front, right? They love the most important seats in the churches, right? And they love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called 
teacher, rabbi by others, right? He goes on, that whole chapter is just a condemnation and he eventually says this, you're a bunch of whitewashed tombs. You are beautiful on the outside, but inside you are filled with dead men's bones. Listen, this sign condemned that kind of external burden on people. Paul concludes it this way in Colossians 2 and verse 15. This was the end of a a powerful uh, doctrinal picture of what it means to be crucified with Jesus and the freedom that it gives us. He says that having disarmed, this is what happened at the cross. He disarmed the powers and the authorities. He made a public spectacle of them where triumphing over them by the cross. Listen, what was at stake at the cross was this, was this foreign power, right? Was the spiritual authority of evil in the heavenly places that was defeated. Thank you, Jesus. Can I get an amen? We've been set free from that bondage mindset of the devil. He says this, based upon that freedom. Listen, the Bible says that Jesus set us free, right? That we've been free in Jesus. He says this, therefore, don't let anyone judge you by what you eat. Twinkies are good, right? Don't let people judge you by what you eat. Or drink, McDonald's iced coffee is fine, right? Or with regard to a religious festival or a new moon celebration or a Shabbat, a Sabbath. Don't let them judge you. Why? Because these are simply shadows of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in who? Jesus. These were just copies. They were never the real thing, right? Don't let anyone who delights in false humility, oh, you know, I don't even want to, I don't want to, if I do it, I'll offend somebody, then no, you'll never come back, right? There's all kinds of false religion, listen, there's all kinds of false humility connected to religious activity. All kinds of it, right? Right? Don't let anyone delight, who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you, right? These, these really religious folk who have these incredibly religious experiences where they're connected to, 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 to the angels and all that stuff. Listen, you ain't ever seen an angel because if you saw one, you'd still be running down a road screaming. You clearly don't know what an angel looks like if you think you've seen one, right? Their picture in scripture is terrifying, right? He says this, such a person, listen to these people, such a person goes into great detail about what they've seen, Right? They're puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind, that mind that's in bondage to that authority that we've been set free from. He said they've lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. He says, since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual force of the world. Listen, that false religion, that bondage religion, that is an elemental spiritual force in the world. Right? It's evil. It's pure evil. He says, keep going. As though you still belong to this world, do you submit to its rules? What are the rules of this elemental spiritual world? Don't handle. Don't taste. Don't touch. Right? All of these Shabbat laws fall into this. He said, these rules which have to do with things that are all destined to what? Perish with use are based on merely human commands and teachings. He says such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom. Listen, 
There are some things we connect to being so godly that seem to be wise. They make sense, right? Seem to have some wisdom to it. He says, with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body. But they lack, listen to this, they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgences. What it means is they have no spiritual force to you. They're not going to help you in your spiritual fight. Yeah, you may look good in a t-shirt. Who cares, right? But it's not going to help you in your spiritual fight. Listen, there are things, there are things that Jesus hates. But you know what Jesus hates the most? He hates that false religion that's created by that elemental spiritual force in the world that too many people are in bondage to. Jesus condemned that. And I don't know about you, but I am so grateful that he did. Amen, church? Listen, we need to be a people of compassion. Can't, you can't be compassionate if you never get off your donkey. Not going to happen, right? And you can't say you have compassion if you're never moved to get in the ditch, right? Jesus moved with compassion toward this guy, right? And when they get here, because they've seen the compassion of God, man, let's please, please, please always be people who condemn that kind of false religion that only cares about the show, right? Let's not create these unnecessary fences for people to get over just to get to who God really is. Amen, church? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this uh, teaching. Um, More than anything, thank you for the miracle, the sign that points us ultimately to you. Because Jesus said later in that text, listen, everything I do, I only do because I see my father doing it. Clearly didn't act on his own. He clearly acted based upon who you are. So God, I, I pray for our church, scattered as far as it is wide. I pray for our church to be a people who understand that you are a God who is compassionate, who is slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. I pray that the people that we encounter will know that about you. And help us to understand they'll never know it by what we say. They'll only know it by what we do. Make us compassionate people. And Father, help us to be a church of people collectively and individually that always condemn that false religion that creates these barriers for people to get over or stay behind so they can't ever get to who you are. Father, help us always to have leaders in this church that condemn that. Help us to always find mothers and fathers who condemn that. And let's make it possible for people to never have trouble getting to you through your son, Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. God bless you, church.